Thanks for joining us on our Real Deals Tech Podcast. The pandemic has left a variety of market sectors in disarray. Technology companies, especially those in the areas of digitization and enterprise software, are proven to be among the most resilient companies projected to, ret to return some of the highest exit multiples in the current environment. Once wary of tech, an increasing number of PE firms are looking to move into what's become a comparatively resilient place to invest. Joining us for the discussion is David Barber, managing partner at FPE Capital, a tech dedicated PE firm that has been exclusively investing in tech companies for over a decade. Darren Green, partner at Rockpool Investments, a generalist PE firm which has major investments in tech. We also have Jonathan Simnet, a tech specialist and director of corporate finance house, Hampleton Partners. And lastly, we have Brian Parker, head of M&A at Icon Corporate Finance. My name's Simon Thompson. I'm a senior reporter with Real Deals Magazine. I'll be moderating the discussion. So I want to dig straight into it, gentlemen. Um, Jonathan, talk us through what's happening in terms of seeing more PE firms looking to invest in tech. Okay, so I mean, I think in, in my time in M&A, what I've seen is that it's been the level of returns and the speed at which the returns can be gained, which have attracted PEs into the sector. Um, in fact, just, just before COVID hit, I was increasingly seeing PEs wanting to exit in three to five years at around three uh, times gains uh, rather than the normal uh, five to seven years which we've been seeing previously. Clearly there have been some changes in tech as well which have suited the aims of private equities. You know? So in terms of risk profile, um, you know, most software firms in tech now have recurring revenue streams um, and that, that's just the norm in enterprise software now. So, of course, they've become particularly attractive. Um, and I also think, and, you know, this, this works at two levels. It works um, in the PE's interest, but I think it also works in the national interest. Certainly in the UK, uh, there's a real need to accelerate the growth of uh, startups, or, or particularly scale-ups, um, and to re-engineer them and add extra value. And often PE's can do this via roll-ups. Um, and this is particularly true because we see constrained growth in UK tech because of the lack of land grab levels of VC funding that do create the world-class firms we see coming out of the West Coast in particular. Uh, and I think this creates a host of opportunities for PE firms um, because the founders need to start to move to the next stage both personally and professionally. And because of the funding, they're not able to expand at the speed which is necessary. And speaking specifically, David, where would you see the ripe areas for PE investment and, you know, as they've come to the fore over the last maybe decade, especially for PE investors? Yeah, so we're a, we're a scale up later stage growth investor, not VC and not leverage. So as, as, and as Jonathan said, you know, what's been really key has been the development of software models around recurring revenue. Uh, but also in niches. So I think if, if you go back, I mean, I was an investment banker actually 20 years ago during the dot-com boom. That that was a kind of slightly unstructured rush at all sorts of sectors in tech, hardware, consumer, travel, all sorts of stuff. It was kind of throw it against the wall, see what stuck. Then there was the dominance of these huge platforms on the West Coast where 
pretty much they steamrolled anyone in Europe. And now what we've seen in Europe is the development of really quite defendable B2B enterprise software niches around things like ed tech, human capital management, where both of those spaces, we've had very successful investments, where there's a national or regional European story that gives you defendability against some of the bigger platforms. And then you can become a nice infill for them as they do a roll up or some of the bigger players try and get global exposure. So for example, we had a ticketing software business um, that was the number one in Europe and we ended up selling to Eventbrite, which is a Sequoia company in the States, which is the dot that's going to become the global platform leader. But we had a, 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 there was a period where you could build a European business without getting, without getting run over. We've done payments, you know, which has obviously been a really hot space. Um, the move from cash to, to digital payment has been relentless and COVID is again, we've seen has given that and yet another big, big push. And there's all sorts of small pieces as you know, we're a smallish fund. We do smallish, smallish investments, um, uh, which are generally the first time a founder or entrepreneurs partnered up with serious institutional capital. Uh, so we don't want to be, we're not, we're not trying to build Googles. We're trying to build really valuable pieces of the, of, of the, of, of the tech food chain that will have a real value to someone else bolting it in adding value to what they've already got. So places like that have become incredibly, um, incredibly attractive to us. And we're focusing at the moment on a number of things in reg tech, the little regulatory technology stuff around pharma. We've done a deal and we're looking at a couple of other similar things. We're looking at insurance tech. There's these kind of pockets of the economy, which just have somehow, you know, kept the wagons around, kept the tech out for quite a long time. Everywhere is going to be opened up. All business processes can be made more efficient with software, which saves people cost and is really easy to implement. So it's finding those niches. Ryan, similar question, but what are some, you know, when you're dealing with a client who's trying to exit or, you know, get investment, what are the key factors that kind of encourage you to take that deal to private equity investment? What makes it suited for private equity investment? Yeah, I think, um, so I mean, I'm one of the founders of Icon. We've, been, we've done over 250 deals in tech. We do both kind of funding and exits. And um, in terms of private equity you know, crossover, you know, back at the beginning of the process, I think we, um, you know, back, back when we were, when we were founded, uh, they were more sources of funding for a business. Whereas the big change really we've seen in the last decade is a number of platform acquisitions where private equity funded um, acquirers are, are, are acquiring you know, UK uh, high growth tech businesses. And we've had several of those in, in you know, actually in, during COVID we've had, uh, we sold a business to AppTeam, which is um, in the logistics space, big, big uh, PE-funded um, business out of, out of the US, and um, it equally um, sold a, a business, um, a Gamma um, bought. Um, although the underbidders were all private equity, I think we had six underbidders, which were private equity uh, owned um, acquirers. So, for me, one of the biggest changes in private equity uh, impacting uh, tech is the number of uh, platform acquisitions where um, the, 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 the PE has invested in, 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 in the company and they've gone on to make and, and supporting them to acquire uh, other businesses and gain scale and get to uh, get to their exit a bit quicker. Interesting. So I want to throw to you in terms of assessing these deals, Darren. Obviously, you're at a firm that has uh, generalist investments as well, not just tech. Could you kind of talk to me about or talk to us about how you would evaluate a tech company differently than compared to a you know, conventional investment? Yeah, I think as a generalist, I suppose we still apply the same lens to technology that we would to other investments. Um, I think it's important to latch on to the, 
So it's recurring revenues, which have been mentioned by Jonathan, um, and understanding SaaS businesses as being quite attractive to private equity at this point in time. So right now, I suppose, looking at um, opportunities on the horizon, we are very much focused on the quality of revenue. I mean, that's one thing in the current period of uncertainty where we can pin our, we can, we can hang, our, hang our hats on the idea that this company will have you know, a solid forecast for the coming years because a lot of it is, is contracted. Um, so that's been a core focus for diligence. We're looking at, at deals recently, but I think getting back to the first point, we still, as generalists, don't want to move too far away from our um, house view or our, you know, our, all the diligence tasks we would do for any deal and, and kind of skip those steps for technology. Because I think particularly looking in my market, which is the low mid market and smaller companies, um, a lot of our, our, our diligence is about understanding capabilities. So although we can appreciate product, we can appreciate market growth, all the kind of the key strategic things are there, but actually the problem we find actually lies in, in delivery. And, understand, and delivery really comes from having the right people in place, the right systems, the right product development, but also the right balance sheet that to deliver that growth. And I think for us, that's really about understanding capabilities and not just thinking oh, this is, it's, it's, a, it's a great clever product right now how long have you guys uh, has rockpool been investing in these kind of areas is yeah so, so i mean so it's generous so, so rockpool we've been around since 2013 we've committed around 500 million pounds to date uh, you know across the uk um as generalists i think when we look at technology you know we've been investors in in, in a pet sitting platform in the last couple of years we a majority owners of Primrose, which is a pure play e-commerce retail, and we have an excellent investment in in IT managed services. So it's kind of been in the portfolio, I suppose, for a long period of time. Um, in the last year, we've also invested in uh, an L&D company with a technology angle. Um, so kind of mean, you know, not not a core theme of ours, but um, I think in the current year, you know, given the backdrop on uncertainty, it's probably speaking as generous more, more of a focus than it would be you know in the ordinary course of business right and david could you kind of pick up you've been in it longer or you're being more focused on it longer perhaps um could you speak to kind of some key areas and um where a new p for moving into tech might get tripped up we've got a long heritage and my partner henry salet used to run a software business uh, for a number of years uh, so we've seen the whole life cycle i think some of that technical knowledge is important but we're not coders so that's mm -hmm. the first thing to say uh, we're in analyzing business models, but the interaction between the technology and the business models is is kind of slightly different in tech and around software in particular. There are a lot of nuances. A lot of people use SaaS when it's, let's face it, not SaaS. Um, a lot of people uh, think if you just charge a recurring revenue, that's SaaS. It's nothing to do with that. And a lot of the value actually is migrating platforms that used to be sort of on-premise perpetual license businesses into SaaS platforms. We've done quite a bit of that. So that is a that is quite a complicated piece where I would say the biggest thing is the increasing focus on technical DD, understanding what your technology debt is. Now, that's a phrase I don't know how many of you know, but I mean, that's coming into more and more of our deals as being the biggest price mover between first bid and final offer. So this is where you've got a, a software base there's a, maybe the business plan is saying we're going to 3x revenues and actually the software isn't scalable. It needs rewriting. Maybe it's in the wrong language. Maybe it's on-premise that needs to go SaaS, which means you're going to have to go to a bunch of your customers and say, you know, all those rinky-dink features you've got, you're going to have to give up 50% of those because we're going to standardize this product because otherwise we can't scale it. So it's things like that where you can really get caught up 
and there could be quite a lot of money. You know, we're talking about maybe 10 to 30% of the EV moving around on some of these, some of these judgments. Uh, so that's, that, that's a point. Now, we're, not, we're still not doing it ourselves, but it's that expertise around how to do it fast, how to do it with a vendor and make them comfortable. There'll be a whole bunch of rev rec. We have revenue recognition problems on, I'd say, 50% plus of our deals where software revenue recognition has gone all over the place. People do it all different ways. I mean, you know, you could, for every time you meet a new company, they've probably done it a different way. Um, and then valuation, of course, is actually probably one of the most knotty problems because you've got, you could go out and you could find for any given software company, you could find a comp somewhere between one and seven or eight times revenues. And you need to know where it sits on that. And you can only do that really through having your eye in through experience, in my view. You'll know what an on-premise model gets, what a really great CEO gets you on top of that, whether that space is going to be hit by, by a competitor from the West Coast, what the, what the organic growth is, all of those things. And until you've done a bunch of investing around software, you can get very confused about what is a one times revenue business and what's a seven times revenue business. And, you know, we all, everyone talks about the seven times revenues because that's all glamorous and interesting, but there are a bunch of, there are, there's, you know, everyone's on that scale somewhere. Um, and I guess finally the point is competition, that thing about how quickly scalable and successful software businesses and tech businesses in general, but in software is what we know can become is there might be that competitor out there. You just never heard of who's, currently $5 million revenue in the US and is going to come and, and try and, uh, and get into your market. So being networked, picking up on picking up from industry players, who's trying to crack this same problem? How much lead have you got on them? We're not doing startups. So we think we've got a lead on people, but you, you can be sure that's not going to last for a huge amount of time. People are all trying to crack very similar problems. So it's some of that stuff. I don't think it's about being you know, uh, as, uh, if you put 10 coders in a room and said, invest the money, you probably wouldn't get the right answer. I think it's about having the experience of the, being in these software markets for 10, 20 years, which is what we've got as a team, which is, it just helps us to know what the right price will be because we've done it, we've sold deals. And Brian's absolutely right. For me, the dominant thing that's coming into this market is, these, is the preponderance of larger software and tech-focused P firms who are building platforms. They're prepared to do maybe a, a quite a small platform deal, but they're building on that and they need acquisitions to, 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 to feed that. And what, I, what I've been really surprised at is how few specialist software and tech investors there are in PE in the small end. They've all started to you know, raise very large funds. Francisco, HG, I mean, we all, Thomas Bravo, Vitruvian, we all know the names who actually got pretty big funds, can't do the small deal so easily anymore. Okay. Jonathan, I wanted to ask you about in terms of culture and talent in tech companies. Obviously, it's a greater factor in the value of a company. If you don't get the kind of match and kind of courtship process right, it can kind of maybe torpedo a lot of a company's value. Could you kind of give us a sense of what PE firms can be conscious of when they're um, dealing with management teams and founders especially? Um, yeah, it's a, it's a very big question. I mean, I guess really interesting listening to, to David's comments there. Um, we're unusual in that all of us have built tech firms. None of us are actually accountants. We're all, we're all technology entrepreneurs. So in my case, that's 40 years worth of experience of, of being in and around the tech sector. And I think it, it really, really does matter when you are dealing with a sector that moves at speed and is very volatile. Um, and you can see paradigm shifts being very rapid, very brutal. David's point about you know the hidden competitor that can come out of nowhere, yeah. um, and that means that investors can be l left with rapidly declining assets. 
Um, there's always dependency on founders and boards and key employees, which are, those people are always going to be in demand elsewhere because that's the nature of tech business. It's the nature of skill shortage. So any PE that is successful, um, and as I think David again uh, highlighted there, there aren't that many PEs that focus entirely on tech, have to understand the culture of tech businesses and how to keep those highly valuable employees in, in place. And that's much more about, much more than just striking the right earnout deal. It's all about culture and the culture in which people can uh, flourish. Um, I think there's some other issues on the negative side um, with the reality that tech firms are built and driven by people. And this can be an issue in establishing a good deal flow, which all four of us want in our businesses. Um, and again, down to David's point about, you know, we could all talk about, you know, 7X, but actually, you know, most businesses around two and three, particularly in some of the tech sectors. Um, often founders overvalue their firms in their heads. I mean, grossly. Yeah. Um, and that can be based on fashion. They've read something about some outlier company. Let's face it. The, the normal press, not talking about real deals here, tends to report on the outliers. So people think that you know, 40x is normal, it absolutely isn't. Yeah. And also the fact that those firms are their baby. And nobody, you know, as a parent, you don't want anybody to tell you your baby's a bit ugly. Um, so often, and again, back to David's uh, point about revenue recognition, every founder thinks they're doing it in the right way. Well, what they forget is that the right way is the way that the inquisitor can understand. Um, and they often ignore macroeconomic factors in the marketplace or sector factors. Um, and actually the reality of, of the shape that their firm is actually in. Um, and, and I think the last thing I would say um, is that the, the, the tech experts around which most of the value in the differential value in the company is centered might not always be the best people to look after the interests of their business. And I think hence the importance of a balanced management team and PEs that really get tech. You know, I mean, uh, excuse Darren, his blushes here, but you know, running tech firms is not, is not the same as running groups of restaurants and pubs, which has been a PE favorite, uh, certainly in the past. Okay, um, so I want to move to deal sourcing. Brian, could you tell us about how the sourcing of deals for your own firm, but also, um, you know, in, uh, working as an intermediary for PE firms? Yeah, I mean, our, our deals are from a broad network of, um, of contacts that we kind of built up. We do a certain amount of marketing ourselves on run events um, in, with the, the technology community and the financial community. Um, um, we do publications, do M&A reviews and things to uh, get our name out there. But... At the end of the day, the key is your network of contacts um, within within the industry, and we, you know, deals leads to more more deals. And um, you know, we've been in business now twenty odd years, um, done two hundred and fifty odd deals. So you know, Bill, you build up quite a lot of contacts, not only in the people you meet in those closing those deals, but the ones that didn't quite get away or the underbidders, and um, as a, as a result, so. It's a broad network of um, you know chairmen and bankers and lawyers and uh, and technology um, and people and people have who've been around actually a couple of times we've, we've had a couple of instances where we've raised money for people um, 
go and sell the business and uh, those technology uh, entrepreneurs they kick on do it again and uh, so it's kind of in some sense a longer pipeline or it's a more recurring pipeline i guess Is, how, how would you kind of differentiate uh, ideally it does that there's recurrence in the pipeline and, and in reality it's you know, there's a series of one-off uh, transactions with, with with some some crossover this, but yeah i mean it's a it's a broad it's a broad network and um you know on, 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 you know you We've been specialists for 20 years, and uh, and uh, you you build up a lot of intellectual capital um, along along the way. And, and uh, as some of the guys were saying, it, things change so quickly. I think the most acquisitive company in the UK in the last two years is a company called ClearCourse. Um, they're owned by private equity Aquiline. They've done about 18 deals, and they didn't exist two years ago. They didn't even have a name. So you need to be kind of you need you need to know what's going on in the market to. Um, yeah, open up these opportunities to clients that come, they, they, they come, you know, that engage you. Darren, I wanted to move to um, LPs. What do LPs think of the area investing in it? And generally, you know, obviously there's some key different factors in terms of how companies in tech are um, valuated, um, especially in terms of revenues. How do you make that pitch to LPs? How have you made that pitch and how has, you know, their view on it evolved? Yeah, I think in the, Current environment, you know, LPs aren't strangers to the idea that you know, uncertainty and the pandemic has weighed upon valuations for you know just about every sector I can, I can think of. Um, and then looking to the in the forward year, you know, we don't know when the pandemic will end. We don't know what unemployment will look like next year. What we do know is that I suppose you know growth prospects uh, are going to be dampened. So I think turning to the mind of LPs, I think people are, are cautious and investors should be cautious. So there is I think, a willingness to look closely at, at, at software and, and technology. Um, that's certainly, you know, on, on, on LP's agendas, but there is caution because, you know, you know, the, the better LPs have been in the market for a long time. They've, they've, they've lived through booms and busts. They understand that valuations can get particularly ridiculous and, you know, people like me can go up, go off and back all sorts of companies with, with, with no real prospects of, of success and that, and that has happened time and time again. So I think on one hand you've got caution, on the other hand there is definitely times have changed and I think I think we are in a, in a new world and I think the pace of change of uh, investors looking towards technology has been accelerated and been brought forward into the, into, into the, into the front of mind. Um, so in terms of being a David, you've been in it a little bit longer. So you would have had to do what Darren has done and make this pitch to LPs quite some time ago when there was maybe a little less certainty of you know positive sentiment about this market. Same question: What's LPs' view on it? Um, how has it evolved, and how do you make that pitch? I've seen a huge evolution in the last five years, just in European LPs. So we we did a we raised our last fund in 2015 16 when i would say there was still quite a broad swathe of european lps who were who treated tech as a bit of a corner of the economy something you sort of put alongside maybe consumer or retail um and i was surprised by that personally because already we were starting to feel that tech was cutting across all sectors and the american investors were way ahead way way ahead the american lps have been doing this 20 years that had multiple successes and they'd seen it done at all layers of their economy including venture growth and the bigger buyout side and that 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 contrast really hit me and then what also hit me was earlier this year in berlin i was at the big super investor conference just before the pandemic hit and suddenly it seemed like there'd been a sea change the european investors were could see that tech was something that was running across all business services, that software was something that was pretty horizontal, it was going to change business processes. 
uh, and they really had I think they'd got the bug that they're a little that they were behind their US counterparts in terms of weightings that they needed to upsize that and that European tech was also now offering some really good GPs who they could back as well as obviously they've always been able to back American uh, American investors but also that there was there was there was a real difference between low mid market growth and venture and those were two different things and you could play them separately and they had different risk and return uh, characteristics but you could do both of those uh, and, uh, look, and since then, obviously, COVID has pretty much nailed that argument because there's no LP now who isn't telling me that they're overweight in software. So um, they've, obviously, they've obviously caught up pretty fast. So we've been lucky in the tech space. I, you know, we've been waiting for this moment for a while, I guess, in Europe for the, for the big swing. And it's, it's kind of happening. Um, but, you know, you've, got to be, you've just got to be really careful. It's, it's, a, it's a difficult space. LPs want you to be a responsible investor, first and foremost. But, they, but I think the tech, the tech question is no longer on the table about is this a flash in the pan? Is it going to last? Are we, tra are we trailing the US? It's now a given that it's a, probably the most dynamic and important part of the economy for them. And remember, they don't have to invest in all the old economy. They, they can, and they are massively underweight, the old economy, the LP, the LP community. They are not in all that stuff in the FTSE that, 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 that has been badly hit. I mean, there may be an over-indexation to casual dining, but that's probably a an anomaly rather than the, the central bit you know they're not in the asset heavy capital heavy parts of the economy as a as a rule so they do have a pretty good they've had a pretty good run the lps i think they're pretty well exposed to to what's happening in the tech space interesting so i want to move to um talk about probably most important role exiting um obviously something all of you can speak to brian do you want to start us off and just give us a sense of you know where you're exiting what kind of multiples you're getting any kind of nuances i know that there's a big appetite for um european tech in the us um just start us off and give us a sense of the exit market for tech yeah i mean it's it's pretty buoyant we've closed five deals in um in uh, lockdown so evidence um, um of, of deals actually kind of closing um and and the multiples one of the multiples was five times revenues one of them was uh, two and a half times revenue as examples i mean i think uh, i think it was jonathan saying earlier on that there is there's a there's a broad church out there and at the, the, the high end there's some there's some 10 times revenues um, out there for certain types of businesses um we see you know digital transformation is you know is, is a kind of key area we're marketing a cloud services business at the moment which is which is um getting a fair bit of um, a fair bit of traction um it's yeah, it, it 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 it's it's a very buoyant kind of space, and the biggest change in the market in the last in the, in the last decade um, hasn't actually been private equity. I don't think it's been the amount of overseas acquirers we've seen in the UK. I mean, a fair number of them are private equity owned, but um, I think seven of our last ten exits were two overseas acquirers, as an example. Awesome. I think in the in the entire tech market in the UK, I think. 50% of deals in the first half of this year are for overseas acquirers. So, uh, Sterling being relatively cheap, we're a source of you know, highly innovative, successful um, tech companies uh, on an ongoing basis. And I think that will, that will continue. Jonathan, same question, um, exit market, anything that someone moving into it would want to know or should know um, in terms of their, how they're exiting their um, portfolio companies? Uh, yeah, certainly. I mean, we've seen you know, stable and rising valuations, um, certainly in collaboration remote working tools, which really shouldn't be a surprise to anybody, uh, but also in gaming and streaming. Um, 
And uh, you know, I think you know, if, there's, if there's going to be a theme in recovery, it's about facilitating distributed businesses, but enabling flexibility and homeworking, um, but also accelerating trends that were there before, such as e-commerce. So anybody that's in e-commerce is, is in a good way. And if you saw some recent figures that came out of IBM, that, that they're basically saying that you know, in three or four months, COVID-19 has accelerated the uh, application of consumer e-commerce by about five years. Um, so any company which isn't at the forefront of supplying the, the tools and infrastructure for that is going to be buying uh, to catch up with that. And we're seeing other areas too, such as um, uh, health tech, where almost at a stroke, where um, physicians or GPs and, and other primary health professionals have been resisting digitization, within a matter of months, 90% of consultations in UK GP surgeries are, being, are taking place remotely. And that had been fought against for many years. And we're seeing other areas such as the necessity of effective pathway management. Um, so, you know, if you're in, you know, business applications, e-learning, education, productivity tools, social networking, home fitness, goods and food delivery, remote working streaming platforms, again, healthcare security, you're in a very good place. Same question, Darren. Um, what, um, what are you guys seeing in terms of exit markets and how are you guys exiting your uh, investments? I think for, for our thesis has always been, in general, to shift assets onto the mid-market. Um, I would include in that bucket, you know, mid-market privately backed consolidators. Um, although I think in technology, there's certainly some, some, some niches um, and some assets that we owned uh, kind of the natural home would be a, be a larger player within that niche. Um, I'm thinking about pet care, for for, for example. Um, you know, think you know. Also, think what's you know what we're seeing in the market now is interesting. I think capturing that, I think um, that disruption in in, in consumers is is, is is a theme that we're seeing in our business now. So um, we're focused on some assets which are. Um, involved in digital transformation and which which should capitalize on ongoing disruption particularly in the consumer world um, particularly in, in the use of on the use of data so I think there's still opportunities um, but I, I think you know the exit market for us is what will continue to be towards towards larger PE players David, similar question, but just kind of want to get a maybe a longer term view. How's the exit market changed for tech companies in, since you started investing in it to now? I think I'm just going to echo the other guys, you know, that it's become much, much more fertile ground. Uh, there's many more funds that are specialists and bigger funds. There are the more generalist funds who we've seen in the middle market uh, drifting into tech are happier when there's a bigger EBITDA line. They feel there's less tech risk if there's more earnings. I'm not sure that's true, by the way. Um, and, uh, you know, you've, the US, we all know about it. We've, I think we're all feeling it that the US buyers are coming here. They're buying on lower multiples than they would pay in the US. They're getting great tech <clears throat> bolt-ons and they're getting... If I'm exiting means that you're getting higher multiples than you'd be getting from a... Well, uh, we're getting a higher multiple than we'd get from a UK firm, but we're getting a lower multiple than they would normally pay in the US. So everyone comes out feeling, I guess, pretty good about that. Um, to be honest, I don't worry about the exit market. <clears throat> That's not my problem. My problem is finding good deals that I can buy at reasonable prices. And I guess the two issues on my mind are 
Jonathan's issue about the the uh, the unreasonable, uh, in my view, vendor who believes that his business is worth you know ten times. And I, I you know, we there's countless great companies that we've missed out on because of how that. How do you not, deal with that? How do you court someone and kind of <clears throat> push, not push them, but kind of guide them to a more realistic? valuation or kind of expectations because you know if they're a really good company you still want to invest in them but how do you is that is that done with a corporate finance advisor is that why they're critical to the transaction john do you maybe want to pick that up uh, yeah totally i mean it's it, it's it's the real moral issue for, for people like me and brian who clearly want want to get mandates but the, on the other hand we don't want to overpromise. And I think, you, you know, you have to be in business for a, a long time to be able to say this is the valuation you're likely to achieve in the marketplace. You know, we believe we can go out, we can get you sold to a private equity or a strategic buyer, but you will not get a valuation of more than this. Clearly, it's in our interest because of the way fees are structured that we get you the maximum valuation. I think in our case, again, is that you know, we can look vendors in the eye and go, look, we've all bought and sold our own companies. We've all been on your side of the table. Um, you know, we can take you through all the, all, the, all the data, all the comps, you know, seven different times of valuation, but this is it. And, you know, I, I can give you a personal example of a, an auto tech company I've been involved in nearly taking to market for the last three years. And it's a classic case of the owner overvaluing what the marketplace will pay, whether it's a P or strategic buyer. Um, so I do think the M&A advisory firms are the people that really can tell companies what they're actually likely to go for in the marketplace. And, it, and frankly, if you're a person trying to sell your company, um, or if you're a PE trying to do some sort of valuation, if you're getting outlier valuations, ignore them. Because that, because because you know, I mean, I'll give you. It's, it's like having Foxtons coming around to value your house. You know, Foxtons are always going to give you the highest valuation. Whether they'll be able to sell sell your house at that valuation, that's a moot point. All right, gentlemen. I want to finish off with one question, one last question, with uh, maybe just a couple of sentences from each of you. Basically, what's on the horizon in terms of tech? What what are you feeling like? PE should and will be investing in in terms of tech areas in the future. We can hopefully identify good products and, and good companies as they rise, but when I think it will be hard pressed to, 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 look, to, look, to look into the future and to understand what will, what will be on the market and what will be attractive. Pretty fair. Um, Brian, do you want to pick it up there? Yeah, I, mean, I think you know we, we, we're seeing a lot of different businesses, whether it's ed tech or health tech, fintech, I mean, across a range of sectors. The, what they have is a recurrent revenue model and they have growth and they're kind of two of the key pillars that uh, any investment's going to be built on and uh, you know at the moment we're seeing a lot of activity around digital transformation obviously move towards home working and remote working um, and I think that unfortunately is here for, uh, to stay for a little while. Depends on who you ask I guess unfortunate or fortunate. Uh, Jonathan? Yeah I mean I think um, we have to get used to as part of um, Brian has just said the fact that AI and machine learning is pervading most areas of economic activity and it's going to be essential in raising productivity in an era where human interaction or the degree of human action is uncertain. Uh, I also think maybe counterintuitive what I was saying earlier on the automotive sector 
is an area where there's, there's definitely money to be made. It's going through three paradigm shifts, electric traction, automotive working, environmental legislation, and also an existential crisis over the future of personal travel simultaneously. So this could pay dividends, I think, for the investors as the major automotive players are being forced to acquire at pace uh, to remain relevant. And you know, we, we've seen that uh, in our firm. Uh, a lot of automotive transactions have gone on in the last year, and that, they're not slowing down at all. David, to finish off, what does the future hold for tech um, PE investment? Yeah, so look, like Darren, you know, we're not VCs. We're not taking um, <clears throat> telescopes out and looking that far out. We are in the business of helping digitize large swathes of the everyday economy that's pretty inefficient and can be done better in software. And so we're going to be keep mining out. You know, it's going to be insure tech, ed tech, uh, L and D, learning, learning and development. All these areas are really, um, really, really fertile ones for us. And there'll be some we don't haven't heard of because every three or four years the cycle changes. It's cloud stuff at the moment. I'm sure Brian and Jonathan are both doing a lot of stuff in that area. Uh, that'll get done. That'll be it. Won't be a bad place to be. It'll just be done. It'll become a more mature industry and people roll on to the next thing. And that's the great thing. It's a great market. It's a great, great, great market. All right, David, Jonathan, Brian, and Darren, we really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for joining us. Producing the show was Ryan Kelly. I'm Simon Thompson for Real Deals Media.